Hello, everyone, and welcome to Future Imagined, a Foresight podcast dedicated to futures thinking. I'm Joe Lapore, your host. I lead Foresight for North America within the global Foresight team at Mars Wrigley. If you love situational analyses and business intel, you'll hopefully have enjoyed this last season of our show. We analyzed various topics influencing markets around the world and the large external forces influencing consumer behavior today and into the future. It's often the case that we use what we know, led by the past, the present, and our expertise on topics to guide plausible and preferred futures. But what if we are taking possible futures for granted? Because we are set in predefined ideas of what a business should be, what our customer expects, what process we need to follow internally to create a new idea. What if those models we operate in inside of our business structure, those models that have been ingrained in our understanding of how to generate success are limiting our potential to grow. As Einstein said, we can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. Perhaps those models that are so grounded in experience, intuition, sound case studies from the past are true. They are good, predictable ways of creating future strategies, but it's also true that they may be limiting our ability to solve problems of the future by using the logic of the past. In this episode, we are going to explore imaginative thinking and how it can grow your business. And while I am super passionate about this topic, I'm so, so excited that we are joined by two experts who can help me make a strong case for imagination. My name is Sarah Stringer. I lead media partnerships across Dentsu International here in the US. I've been very lucky in my career to work in some very strange verticals, including uh, funeral directors, through to entertainment, innovation, and now working with our largest platform partners. I think as we see the platforms and the marketplace change at a breakneck speed, imagination has to come into play if we want to keep up with culture. I'm Martin Reeves. I lead the BCG Henderson Institute, which is BCG's think tank on new issues and strategy. My connection to the topic of imagination is that I've just written a book called The Imagination Machine, which is about the role of imagination or the creative side of strategy that we often think of as a a sort of deductive or logical process. I'm so honored to have you both in the conversation on this topic. And maybe we'll start by actually defining what imagination is. So I think we all know the saying, let your imagination run wild. And what that I think cues in your mind is fantasy, daydreaming, another reality, creative license. And often these things come in the context of having fun or trying to achieve the unachievable, not necessarily about making calculated business decisions. So Martin, when we speak about imagination and when you describe it in your book, you actually talk about it being very grounded in reality. How do you define imagination? I define imagination as the ability to create mental models of things that don't exist, but could exist. So could exist means that it's grounded in causal thinking. So there's this thing called the correlation distance. In other words, how separated is the imaginative model from reality? If it still complies with the laws of physics, then it's imagination. If it doesn't, then it's probably dreaming or or fantasy. The other important thing about imagination is that it's social and it's useful. So we often think about imagination as being the creation of the private mental image. But ideas that are not shared are essentially personal indulgences. 
And also ideas that don't create new realities. So remember, the definition was could be the case, but isn't the case. Making some of those mental models be the case. In other words, changing the world through imagination is an important part of the value of imagination. And so these are the sort of aspects that I go into in my book. I think the main misunderstanding here is that our current view of imagination is heavily influenced by the romantic thinkers of 150 years or so ago, essentially romanticize the private vision aspect of imagination, which misses out on these other dimensions that I've uh, highlighted. So I think we think of imaginative thinking around things that either haven't been done before. So you get first mover advantage in market by doing something that captures people's imagination or doing something that is a preset of rules, like how we would normally expect a brand or a vertical to behave. And we use that as a benchmark to then do something different. So for instance, think of what the hotel model used to be. We wouldn't think of Airbnb as potentially, you know, guess what? A room in your house could be a challenger to hotels. It ended up being that. So it's set for media around how do we do things that feel novel and interesting to an audience so we capture a disproportionate amount of attention because we have tackled a problem in a new and different way. Now, the difficulty, of course, in media is how do you then turn something that is an idea into something that can actually happen? And I think that's usually where a lot of the craft then comes into imaginative thinking and being innovative. Agency side is that, I think to Martin's point, an idea on it on your own can feel like an indulgence. And it's certainly an indulgence in a brainstorm when someone comes up with a crazy idea that you're like, there is no way that that can happen. But the real art from that comes from finding a solution that gets you as close enough to a novel concept, but that can actually be brought to market. So Martin, how much of imagination is about generating something that didn't exist before? Well, in business, I think that's absolutely critical. I think all companies are founded on an act of imagination. A company cannot come into existence unless it has a new problem to solve or a new way of solving an existing problem. The problem is that if you become successful in one cycle of imagination, you can often be trapped by your own success. You can often confuse your mental model, your successful mental model of the business for an immutable fact. Whereas in the very changeable world of business nowadays, we need to constantly reimagine. So actually, imagining is something that we all do. It's a basic trait of our species. Any five-year-old can imagine. Uh, successful corporations have trouble reimagining themselves because they're sort of essentially prisoners of the mental models that underpin their, their past success. And it's tremendously important strategically because the one big thing which has changed in strategy in the last 20 years or so is the so-called fade rate, the rate at which your competitive advantage declines has increased uh, something like tenfold. So that means that whatever you were doing before, you now need to be doing with 10 times more renewal. Interesting point you make there, Martin, because I think in advertising, we find a lot of brands are constantly sometimes trying to reinvent themselves to the point where they then lose all the equity that they had previously. So I think we see this sometimes in sort of like the battle of narratives between like creative agencies and media agencies. But the idea of having something that is distinctive, that people can identify that when you show up wherever you are, that is distinctively you is super important in a very cluttered space. But we find that brands want to reinvent that narrative Maybe, you know, every four years, maybe when they change agencies and then all of a sudden you've lost all of that amazing groundwork that you had and that you built and all the things that you're famous for. 
And so what do you think the right balance is between finding something that you can be known for? And that is kind of like the essence of who you are and how you behave. And I guess your personality as a brand versus showing up in interesting ways that supports that essence of you versus feeling like it has to constantly reinvent the wheel to just get that attention. Yeah, I think that's a very profound question, Sarah. So it's certainly the case that we need to renew our strategies as companies across all sectors, actually, but especially in anything connected with technology, because the intangible assets of digital um, enterprises can just change instantaneously and, and continuously. So we certainly need a high rate of renewal. That has to be more than superficial hyperactivity. So merely changing the narrative or changing the name, or as the expression goes, you know, adding another blade, you know, incremental hyperactivity is not enough. You know, essentially what we're talking about here is creating effective systems of imagination. So I define a system of imagination as something that is continuously able to imagine new futures and bring those futures about. So in that sense, what are the requirements for a successful system of imagination? I think one of them is communality, which is a shared vision of reality. So it's not just what you say, it's the fact that your customers understand you and buy into that and your colleagues understand you and buy into that. It has to be coherent. In other words, you can't have a bit of this and a bit of that. There has to be a coherent story. There has to be some translation back to reality because one of the interesting things about a a cycle of imagination is that surprises in reality trigger new mental models, but then those mental models need to be tested in reality. They need to become tangible again. So you need to root back to the tangible. It's not just a narrative. It's a narrative connected to a new reality. And then finally, it has to be sort of financially balanced in the sense that the imagined object has to be valuable in itself and it has to maintain the uh, ability to exploit the old in order to pay for the new because the new is never instantaneously successful. So in strategy, we call that strategic ambidexterity, the ability to exploit a business and explore new possibilities, which undermine that successful business model and replace it over time to do both of those things, which is very difficult because it sort of involves a paradox. You know, essentially it's uh, optimizing the efficiency of something exists while working on the means of destruction and replacement of that thing. It's a very hard thing to do. Being imaginative needs structure, which I know sometimes sounds a bit like an oxymoron, but if you don't put a structure around it, like how the heck are you going to actually do it? Because it's like, then it becomes something that feels like a, you know, you get a brief saying, be more imaginative. And you're like, it feels like falling into an abyss. You're like, there's no walls here for me to work up against. And I like the point that you just made. I mean, it's an old framework, but I still think a good one around 70, 20, 10. And how do you ensure that you're still keeping the business of business running and making sure that you're doing the things that you know are going to keep the train on the tracks? But then how are you building in this sense of 20% optimization around things that you know kind of work, but you're still working through what that strategy should look like? And then where is your 10% like, I don't want to say like a burn fund, but how can you be, how do you make sure that you're trying things because you don't know what you don't know? And how are you building a structure into that and how you're working in business to ensure that you are exploring things and you're putting a good, a sense of strategy around it? It's not going to be all your money. You shouldn't ever bank everything. You shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket. But how do you build experimentation and imagination into your day-to-day planning? So you're experimenting for success, but not setting yourself up for failure if it doesn't go the way you expected it to. Yeah, I think one of the points you're making there about it needing to be a systematic process, it sounds like an oxymoron, but it really isn't. The only reason it sounds like an oxymoron is because of this sort of romantic vision we have of acts of divine inspiration to highly creative and exceptional individuals, that sort of image of creativity which actually is absurd because there aren't other aspects of human affairs, the complex, unpredictable aspects of human affairs, which businesses shy away from for that reason. For instance, we don't say, 
oh my God, we could never think about team composition. It requires divine inspiration. Or we could never think about consumer psychology because it's far too mystical. But for some reason, we tell stories about the moment when Steve Jobs thought about this or, or thought about that as if it is some process of divine inspiration, but it can and needs to be structured in many ways. Triggers for imagination are essentially contact with otherness or surprise, things that force us to think differently. That can be structured. That's a structured experiential process, a structured analytical process. The process of counterfactual thinking, you know, elaborating new imaginative possibilities, and this whole set of techniques that one can use to make yourself better at that. Testing imaginative ideas in reality. I mean, there's a discipline to experimentation. You refer to the discipline of portfolio balance, having some old bets that you're still exploiting and some reasonably sure bets that you're in the process of developing as well as some long shots. So I think the real need here is for a playbook, which surprisingly we don't have for how to systematically build that uh, imagination machine. I think it's really interesting that you both touched on the need to actually dedicate time inside of the framework of a business to be able to practice imagination and that experimentation. And I think it's really fascinating, you know, Sarah, when you said the 10% that you dedicate to that experimentation If we look at small companies and startups, that's their 100%, right? Like that's what they do day in, day out. And I think that's a part of the reason why we, in big business, we idolize startups and entrepreneurs and these innovative thinkers that Martin, like you were saying, we have this ideal about how they generate ideas. And I think it's um, really fascinating if I think about even Originals by Adam Grant. He dives into this a little bit when he says that, you know, these big innovators that have these, you know, ideas and these visions and these revolutionary innovations, they actually don't come up with one idea that just, you know, hits the nail on the head. They come up with a multitude of ideas. And actually, the more ideas, the better. So how do we get into that habit inside of a business to make time, to carve time, to generate ideas and to experiment and to explore? I think a part of the reason why we don't do that inside of a business is that we don't practice imagination for fear of failure and this need to have these perfect processes inside of a business. And therefore, these processes dictate perfect outcomes. So how do we start to move away from that sort of obsession with perfection inside of a business. Sarah, I'd love to start with your take on that. I think it comes down to risk and how tolerant a business is for risk. And you'll find that the most innovative companies have test and learn labs. They're open to this idea of trying a few things out and then potentially, you know, I guess having not a public failure, but something that they're like, "Mm, we tried this and we didn't necessarily make it work out. I mean, look at Google Glass, didn't take off how we necessarily expected it to. But Google managed to get a lot of people to pay for a very expensive headset to then give them data and to test out in the world and get feedback from people who were real fans of theirs and fans of technology to find out what was and wasn't right around this product. And no one thinks, oh, well, Google failed because Google Glass isn't like a thing right now. They're constantly building trial and testing into their business. And I think to your point earlier around these startups to market, they're coming in to set their own rules. They have to challenge because they don't have the same level of budgets or recognition as some of these really well-established brands. And in a weird way, it's freeing because they're creating a whole new market for themselves and a whole new approach. And I think businesses that are kind of deemed imaginative or innovative have built that process in and they have a tolerance for this idea of things not necessarily working out as they expected. 
And I think if you are a brand or a business that hasn't built that into your financial planning, then this idea of it being like something that you haven't spent or you're going to have to give it back to the CFO at the end of the year and then that budget goes away. We need to be building into businesses this idea that you do have this wedge of money that should be for experimentation to, quite frankly, in some cases, break your business. Netflix started off as a DVD company that you checked out your DVDs, they mailed them to you, you kept them for however long, and then you mailed them back. Netflix today, I mean, they've just launched a gaming platform. They essentially recreated what at-home entertainment looked like for the current generation. So, you know, if they weren't willing to sort of eat their own business, then they wouldn't have got to that level of innovation and to have got to where they where they have. And I think it's interesting that they're looking at their competitors in market and they're like, oh God, they even mentioned it on an earnings call that they viewed Fortnite as a bigger competitor than they thought of as HBO. And you just see that they have an eye to what is the next thing that's going to take us down and then how do we help challenge that? And I think that building this sense of risk factor and trial into your business and knowing that there should be a budget that isn't taken away at the end of the year if you haven't necessarily used all of it, but you should be building that as experimentation and growth funds So it should be viewed as a positive. It shouldn't be viewed as something that you should be able to just take away if you didn't necessarily spend it or it didn't give you the result you were expecting. Because without those experimentations, you're essentially stagnant, if not rolling backwards in your business. And Netflix, I think, is a great example of a company that has been growing exponentially, particularly over the last few years. And I think a lot of people would just sort of sit back and say, well, the model's working. You know, what we're doing is successful. Let's keep it going. Instead of doing what they're doing, which I think is demonstrating a level of bravery and boldness or confidence even in how they're approaching future growth opportunities and their competitive set. So Martin, I'm curious how much of imagination really is hinging on bravery? Well, I think the grant makes some interesting points going back to that about how do these creative individuals come up with many ideas, a few of which work. However, it does us a gross disservice by putting the emphasis on heroic individuals. I think the real need here is for systematic communal arrangements, the ability of a company to build an imagination machine. And I think there are some powerful but not insuperable reasons why big companies run into trouble here. So one of them is complacency. I think success is like lukewarm water. It makes us very comfortable. And there's no entrepreneur in their first year of business that is not constantly worrying about going out of business in the next day or two. But somehow things become too comfortable for large companies and nothing kills imagination quite as well as either complacency or fear. So when big companies do hit crises, there's this thing called the Seneca effect. The decline is often faster than the rise. And then they go into panic. And again, nothing less conducive to imagination than fear. You know, I think another issue is introversion. So a company is a bit like a sphere. The ratio of its surface area to its volume decreases as you increase the radius. In other words, inevitably, there are more and more people in a large company as it grows, that have never seen a customer. And so they become very internally focused and you're never going to get surprised. And the science of imagination that we looked into for the book um, says basically the reason why we revise our mental models is we get surprised. Things don't fit our current mental model. If you're not looking out of the window, you're never going to be surprised. Um, So that's another systemic reason. I think another one is efficiency. In a sense, once a startup has survived its first couple of years and has a stable cash flow, then it becomes its fate not to find new things, but to make money out of the successful things that it's found. So it becomes an exercising and scaling and efficiency. And that's quite legitimate. 
But the thing is, it can't go on forever because you can't improve the efficiency of something that has become obsolete, or at least it would be a complete waste of time. So we have to not completely sell out to efficiency. And efficiency is important. Uh, we need to scale our inventions, but also we need to prepare for the next wave of inventions. And often the financial machinery of a company is designed to maximize efficiency of what is rather than to create uh, new things. And I think a good way into all of this is is just to think about what I call the baseline fallacy. So Jeff Bezos says, you know, it's very important to have day one culture, meaning you have to have the humbleness, be aware of your own fallibility, uh, even as a large enterprise, every bit as self-aware as a startup. I think the way to do that in a large company is not to have as the baseline for any business proposal the continuation of your current success, but to have instead as your realistic baseline, the fact that your current success will by default fade away. And what are you going to do? In other words, it removes the easy option, which is the hope that with no imaginative effort, things will continue pretty much as they are, which rarely happens. Sarah, I imagine that you deal with that quite often when you're sort of proposing new strategies for brands that are maybe more introverted, like Martin said, is you're proposing a reality where they're not potentially as comfortable as they have been for a while. And I don't know about you, but certainly when agencies bring this to brands from the brand side, there's almost like a skepticism, like, oh, they're just trying to shake us and stir us, but that's not actually what's going to happen. We'll be fine. We'll be okay. Do you face into that quite often? I remember, and this was said lovingly, an old CEO that I was working with in Australia once said to me, well, Sarah, you're probably the most hated person in our agency. And I was like, cheers, mate. That's nice to know. And he's like, no, but the problem is, is like you are a change agent. And a lot of people, even in the type of work that we do, don't like change. They want it to be like, guess what? I can do this, this and this, and it's going to lead to success. Everyone's going to be happy and it's not going to be super stressful. And doing anything new is a bloody nightmare, quite frankly. We did a campaign with Snapchat before Snapchat even had ads on Snapchat. We actually worked with a content partner to integrate into some of their editorial an opportunity to have a brand present during that editorial. And that's how we worked through it. Like there are little things that you can do to kind of hack the system, but they're not easy to do. They probably take at least three times more than the thing that is openly available to you. But what you miss out on is the idea that people are like, oh, I haven't seen that before. Or, you know, we created a competition where people could use the artistic functionality of paint in Snap. And here I am aging myself a bit. And that was actually the people's entry. So they could take a picture of the product. They could then do an artistic version around it. And it was whoever had come up with the most hilarious scenario for this particular object that ended up like winning the prize. And as much as my CEO was trying to say something nice, and it, I probably went home that night and was like, God, does everyone hate me? But the reality is, is that doing anything new is hard. And, you know, you're going to have different people with different personalities in your business who are not necessarily going to feel great about that sense of change. So some people are more comfortable with change than others. And they're the people that you can task with some of these slightly more variables that you're going to have to do a bit of problem solving. Because in any kind of sort of imaginative brainstorm, someone comes up with a concept and you're like, wow, that's an amazing concept. And then by the time you start bringing it into market, it's like you keep chipping away at different things of that idea as you work out what some of the realities are. And in some cases, you may even find that the essence of that idea and what ends up happening is completely different, but it's still something that's very valuable. You should try it. Your team has learned a lot about the do's and don'ts or what is available. And all of that should be viewed as value. 
Because guess what? You have a competitive advantage on someone else who A, hasn't even come up with that idea, and B, even if you haven't got necessarily as close to that pure idea as possible, there's value there. But there's resistance everywhere. And I think it's about understanding that as much as it's not some divine inspiration where good ideas should come from, but there's still going to be certain people in your business who are going to be more comfortable with pivoting around an idea to get something to market. And there are other people who you need to have steady on the team to help drive the rest of that 70%. And that's still super important. I've actually always been surprised in my career that clients are way more open to change than I think a lot of people expect. The person who wants to talk about the latest and greatest and what's happening is most of the clients I've ever worked with. They're actually so excited about change. And a lot of the time I've worked with people who are like, you know what, I know that you guys can do the basics right. And I know you're going to do that brilliantly, but I would love to talk to you about that 10%. So rather than us taking this two hour meeting to talk about everything and how we're getting all the basics right, let's spend most of that time talking about all the stuff that we don't know. And in my view, that is where, you know, that trust and companionship of what your agency can bring to a relationship and how you then bring that to market. Like that's where you want to get to. You want to be a place of trust because if you're a client who doesn't trust the spots and dots, there's a bigger issue there that you have to solve for. But what you want is a partner that you can sort of go into the marketplace with new, fresh thinking because to transform your business, you're going to have to try some new things and you have to have a companion with you to do it, to know that they've got your back and they want to do it for the right reasons. Yeah, definitely. And that companionship, I think you're inspired by more people that you encounter inside of the business setting that have that same ability to stretch their mind and to think differently and to even have conversations about things that potentially are not happening inside of your category or your industry or your market. And that opens you up, opens your aperture for, you know, differentiated thinking. And Martin, you touched on this before when you said surprise, you said that a few times, is that element of surprise. I think a part of that is linked into a part in your book where you talk about tapping into inspiration for imagination and how you foster that imagination. And you spoke about seeing and reflecting. For me, this is so linked to what we do inside of Foresight. And again, with Foresight, we're trying to build the Foresight muscles inside of everyone, not just for us to hone that skill in ourselves. But a part of it is critical thinking. So really thinking through what you're seeing and trying to create, you know, real robust thoughts and perspectives about it, but also curiosity, practicing curiosity about what's happening in the world and being open to that surprise that's around the corner. How do you tap into that inspiration and how much of this is curiosity? Yeah, so I think there are a number of important elements to kick off the process of imagination with surprise. And the first one is to lean against this tendency to become introverted. And so um, and a very dramatic story that we include in the book is the turnaround of Hindustan Lever, Unilever's very successful and much admired subsidiary in, in, in India that was a poster child of a company, but hit a stagnant period around 2008. And part of the solution was to send everybody in the company, including their receptionists and the caretakers, into the field to answer five questions. And one of the questions was, what did you see that was surprising? And they came back with thousands of ideas that were the the fuel for their subsequent uh, turnaround. So that's something that a leader can control, the extroversion of the organization. And then I think attention to detail. So one of the great statistical innovations is the average. We can summarize lots of information in a in an arithmetic mean. But actually, in imagination, the details are important. You know, the particular consumer, the anomaly that's doing something differently or the accident. I was trying to do this and then something else happened. Or the analogy, oh, this is a bit like that. So the details are very important. I talk about um, thinking like a novelist, you know, thinking about the details. 
you wouldn't write a successful novel about an average of all human personalities. It would be about the particular quirks of each personality. And then I think you have to care because partly the surprise is in the data. You see something interesting happening, but you have to be interested. So you have to be curious. You have to, you have to bring curiosity to the situation. And that curiosity can manifest itself as either positive or negative emotion. Frustration with the status quo is certainly a driving force for the entrepreneurs we interviewed for the book, but also the romanticism of the ideal, just the idea that things could be a hundred times better even if the world has not seen it yet. And so sort of caring and, and being frustrated, not taking reality for granted, imagining there's a possibility of being better. And then the, the sort of modern aspect of it is data and analytics. So there's a paradox, which is that imagination is a u- uniquely human propensity. As far as we can tell, animals only have a very limited form of imagination. And machine learning cannot imagine. Now, you, you can't analyze using a machine learning algorithm. The data doesn't exist about the thing that doesn't yet exist. But on the other hand, data analytics can can synergize with human imagination. So for instance, if we want to take a vast data set and say, and say show me the exceptions, you know, graphically map out all consumers in the space and show me the, the 1% of consumers that are using the product differently or who have stopped using the product, you can often find those needles in haystacks more easily with analytical tools. So there are really lots of things you can do to enhance this first stage of imagination, the, the surprise. And just one more thing here, which is that I think we're talking about two types of surprise. So, so There's surprise to the individual mind from the external world. But then for imagination to become social, my surprise needs to become your surprise. I need to inspire you with a story or by showing you something that enables the idea to spread. And in spreading, of course, two things happen. One of them is that your mind, which is different from mine, evolves the idea. You don't exactly grasp my idea. You grasp a version of and you work on some aspect of. And then secondly, we're moving a step closer to adoption of an idea once we have a shared reality. And there's a lot, again, that leaders can do about that with the storytelling and with celebration and recognition of imagination and putting aside time for reflection. In your 70-20-10, Sarah, you, you talked about the allocation of time to do things. I think it's important also to have for that appears a percentage, which is doing nothing, which is reflecting on action so that you can have more effective actions when you do move again to action in the future. So one thing I wanted to touch on, which you were sort of leading into there, is around taking the time to rest so that you can have the right time and the right headspace to be able to explore ideas. And I think one of the things that we often talk about at the moment anyway in 2020, 2021, is the need to rest and relax and de-stress so that we have the right kind of capacity physically and psychologically, cognitively to be able to do that. We talk about rest quite a lot. And in your book, you say rest is not idleness. So that's linked to that point that you were just making. But we don't hear a lot about time to play. And we know from research that play for adults is just as beneficial as play for developing children. So how much of a business time allocation should we have for, I'll call it, productive play? And where do we start with that? Yeah. So play is very important, of course. It it seems like a frivolous business and um, something that adults and sensible corporations shouldn't do. But biologically, what is play? It's uh, accelerated, de-risked, spontaneous learning. Little kids play with plastic swords and mock fighting because it's a lot faster and it's a lot safer than waiting for the uh, you know actual mortal combat 
in adulthood. And, and similarly, you know, we can use our, the imaginative propensities in our brain by play-acting different situations. It helps us to imagine what could be and not what is. But very little time is devoted to this in, in, in corporations. But I've very successfully used this in strategy processes. In fact, I sort of discovered about 10 years ago that it's not only possible, but it's necessary to have play in a strategy process. And the reason for that is that in the process of developing a strategy, this is curious propensity that even if you have the right people with the right questions, with the right resources and the right brain power hammering away at a problem, there's this extreme tendency to come out at the other end of the process with pretty much what you went in with, with only an incrementally different version of the assumptions that you started the process with. So I, I sort of bumped into the idea about 10 years ago that you can't stretch a strategy unless you stretch your mind. And play is a really, really good way of stretching the mind. And the other one is private reflection. Occasionally, you see sort of offices that are designed to stimulate creativity, and they often consist of, uh, you know, football tables and bright colors and so on, which the science tells us is exactly the wrong approach because imagination is enhanced by the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest system. It would be far more effective, actually, to have pastel tones and calm spaces for reflection. But again, it seems slightly illegitimate, the idea of busy, profitable businesses taking time to do nothing. There's a factual question of what is the data on the anomalous consumer behavior or the anomalous you know, market. That doesn't tell you how to further develop your idea. That has to be supplied through reflection. And we know that reflection is a sort of process of mental recombination, taking apart the elements of a situation and saying, what if we put these two together? What if we swap out that element? And, and that requires either play or reflection. So those are two things that are really missing from and should be a bigger part of corporate life, I think, Joe. I mean, I think this idea of downtime or deep thinking time is really important for people. And I think particularly since the pandemic, everyone has been on, I mean, I don't know about you, I feel like I'm on about eight and a half hours of back-to-back -back calls every single day. I can barely get the actual work I'm meant to get done, let alone a bit of thinking time to come up with like good ideas. I have to say the business actually recognized this. So we try and avoid meetings on Fridays as much as possible, but we actually have a block of time from one o'clock until 5.30 on Fridays that we call me time like never before. And that time is meant to be, you know, if there's a, a task that you just haven't got to and it's like desperately on your to-do list, this is meant to be time that you can take out to do it. If there is an appointment or, you know, you want to go to a museum or you want to do something that is kind of outside of work, that afternoon is meant for that time for you to be able to do that too. And it kind of goes back to some of the best advice I got when I first joined Agency Land. Someone, it was actually the CEO of the agency that I joined, would have one-to-one -one meetings with every single new starter, which is kind of amazing if you think about that now. He was asking me about my degree and the things I did outside of work and the fact I like painting. And he was like, I'm just going to say this to you now. Sometimes this job is going to make you feel like this is the only thing that you have time for. And he said, I just want you to know that the best thing that you can do to be good at the job that we have hired you to do is keep up with all the things that make you, you outside of work. Because he was like, if you're not you outside of work, then we're actually missing out on the reason why we invited you into this company in the first place. And I still give that advice to people that, you know, I mentor or I speak to today because we can't be good. And I think this goes back to Martin, your viewpoint of the sphere is that if you become far removed from the things that you're passionate about or you make time for or the things that really make you, you outside of work, you can't bring all those nuanced insights then to, to in-work opportunities. And again, this is back to the reason why you should have diverse teams that have different backgrounds. They shouldn't all look the same. They shouldn't all be from the same place. 
They shouldn't all come from the same education history. We shouldn't all come from the same economic background because you need that diversity of thinking and experience and all the things that interest people to be brought into the workplace. So you know a good idea when you get consensus with a whole load of people that actually arguably all come from different backgrounds, but everyone can go, that's a really bloody good idea. And we should be looking at that because that's a true human insight. And usually the most times that when people go, that really connected with me, is something that it seems so obvious that you're like, why didn't we think of that before? And it's because we put all these filters on it as to why it should really hit. I mean, I still think one of my favorite campaigns ever is still the Snickers, you're not you and you're hungry because you're hangry. Like the whole thing is so pure because everyone's felt that. Everyone knows that, you know, you can be a bit moody or you potentially make some bad decisions because your blood sugar's low. And it's just such a simple but so effective insight. And that's why you need to make time. You need to, you know, be the random person on the team that does archery. And I'll be the random person on the team that, you know, spends a lot of time upstate or someone who comes from a completely different country. And culturally, this is what they maybe do at the holidays versus somewhere else that don't celebrate maybe Christmas. Like all these things are important to find common ground because that's arguably what makes us human and better. And it's funny that you talk about play because, I mean, I've been very interested in gaming for a very long time. But a couple of years ago, while everyone was talking about Fortnite and obviously still are talking about Fortnite, but I was in the office and I downloaded Fortnite onto my phone and there was someone on a team, I will obviously not name names, and they were like, oh, well, you're obviously not working then because I was like playing around with Fortnite. And I'm like, this is our job. This is what people are doing. This is what people are spending their time. If anything, I'm doing extra of my job because I'm actually taking the time out to do this stuff. And I think to the point that, you know, I used to work on a toy brand. I don't have kids. I might be an auntie, but it's not really the same. So we as a team would go out to different shopping centers and we would see how all of the different toys were stacked on shelves. We would see, you know, stressed out parents having to deal with a child's tantrum in the middle of the aisle. Like all of these things are such rich territory to come up with things. But if you're not taking that time out to just have a chat about things that arguably even might seem mundane, you're missing out on the richness where people go, wow, you really hit on something there because it's that stuff that connects us versus the things that you're like, oh, as a business, this is what we want to talk about. And you're like, guess what? That's not the reason why people may use you. And that's where the real value comes in is taking that time out to think about it. We all talk about this. Go for a walk, have a shower, go to the toilet. Like these are when all the best ideas come out because you're not actually in front of your computer being like, oh God, what was that idea meant? So I think there's a few like practical things. I think I think your main point around not feeling shame around things like play and, you know, is that insight around like Netflix? Like when you're like, yes, Netflix, I'm still watching it. Stop judging me. Like all these things come because you're a consumer of that product and you're a person that's interacting with this stuff. And The more far removed you get from that or the fact that you don't build that into your business practice, then the harder it's going to be for you to get something that really unlocks to something bigger. We're in the business of designing things for people, for human beings. And so we talk about being consumer obsessed inside of Mars. And a part of that is being human obsessed and connecting with our own humanity allows us to better understand what makes someone else human, their needs, their motivations. So I think that's a part of the reason why you see a lot of companies creating these play areas inside of the office, because they're trying to bridge that gap between you playing outside and bringing yourself into the office and allowing yourself to have those moments where you don't feel guilty around. Like I remember feeling guilty around reading a trend report at my desk. How frivolous would that be with my time in the office? But actually, it's a part of your job, let alone, you know, actually having a play. I remember going into an office for a distributor back in Melbourne years ago, and they had a giant slide in the office. I just thought that was like the best thing in the world. It was so hokey and so gimmicky, but at least it 
kind of made the workplace a little bit more like somewhere where humans live and breathe and not like I'm sitting in a cubicle, you know, designed for a robot, essentially. So Martin, I'm curious how much of, you know, tapping into imagination, say if you're running, you know, workshops or if you're trying to create ideation sessions, like how much of that needs to happen inside of a setting that can allow that imagination and creativity to flourish? Or is it much more about the process versus the setting? And the setting is important. I mean, um, associated with the idea of play is the idea of playground, which is the context, the signals that it's okay to play here. It's a magic space where you, know, you realize that you're not actually fighting and um, there are certain you know, ritual behaviors and celebrations of play. So the setting is important. And it's not just the material setting, it's more the behavioral setting. So whether your, your boss opens the meeting with a, with a joke or not, or a very human anecdote, sets the tone for the interaction. I think the broader point here, though, is that as artificial intelligence takes over the routine aspects of business, one of the challenges for organizations is, well, you know, what do the humans do? And the obvious answer is focus on the more uniquely human qualities. And the two main uniquely human qualities that machine learning will probably never be able to do is empathetic interactions with other human beings. And the other one is counterfactual thinking or imagination. Now, the problem is that that jars with the idea of the classical industrial workplace where you you have a certain sort of clothing code and the there's a certain sameness about the office and there's a certain uniformity to the agenda. Um, so one of the, the latest projects that I've been engaged in is an analysis of the language that we use and don't use in business. And it turns out that business rarely uses about you know 30% of the language. You'll rarely find the word um, love or empathy or compassion or imagination mentioned in an annual report or an investor call. And I think this has quite serious ramifications because, of course, language reflects how we think and how we think reflects how we behave. And if the imperative is to be uniquely human in the workplace and we're not bringing our whole humanity to work, not even the whole of our language to work, then, you know, I think it's a serious problem. So I, I think another very big agenda that's not much talked about, which I think will become a bigger thing over time, is the agenda for the rehumanization of business. And I think re-embracing imagination is part of that and celebrating cognitive diversity is part of that. And all of what we discussed today plugs into that much bigger rehumanization of the workplace agenda, which is a necessary pre-requirement, I think, for, uh, for creativity. One final question I wanted to ask both of you was, you know, when you were talking before, Martin, around, you know, opening a meeting with a joke. I think also giving that permission to have those sorts of conversations and to use the type of language that is traditionally a bit risky in a business, being able to talk about topics that traditionally we don't maybe put on the table. So to really sort of stretch ourselves into uncomfortable territory. And Sarah, I know that you have talked about creating an idea that will get you fired, which I'm going to steal with pride. I absolutely love that. So that's my final question for, for both of you is, when we think about the future and imaginative thinking, what is one idea around how we can better leverage that that will get you fired? A fairly classical way of getting fired in a large sensible corporation is to make fun of things, not respect the current successful business model, the current orthodoxy, to spend less than 100% of your time on execution, to play, and to use humor liberally. I mean, that would probably do it if you did all of those in a single meeting. <laughs> But there's the irony, which is all of those are necessary ingredients of a human, curious, imaginative, innovative organization. 
I would say spend meetings only talking about the things that are going to kill your business and then try and find a solution for it. We spend so much time talking about things that we already know and things that we're already very comfortable with that we should just talk about things in business that make us most uncomfortable. We'll say that the competition's rubbish, but imagine if we just said how much we love the competition. How about we view it with a very critical mindset and go, God, they're killing it. And don't get me wrong, you need to celebrate the wins when they come in or like, oh, wow, that was really cool. But if you constantly like, oh yeah, things seem fine. Fine's not gonna make you be really proud to then point something out to a mate and be like, guess what, I did that. You wanna do work that you would be happy to tell people over a dinner table that you did. It's so easy for me to end the episode asking if you are inspired. I certainly was. But more than generating inspiration, we believe that imagination can be the unlocker to exponential business growth. Now more than ever before, you should be the advocate for change in your business. How do you do that? Start by seeking out surprise, the accident or the detail within something, as Martin put it, to connect with what makes you, you, and therefore connects with your consumer's humanity. Make room for thinking and rest, which is not a waste of time and is important for your productivity at work. Be the person in the room, as Sarah said, that wants to talk about that 10%, the exploration of future possibilities, and has a dedication to being curious. That kind of advocacy for change is infectious. Imagination is not just about coming up with new ideas or sparking new thoughts. It's also about rethinking what you know to transform your business. I have a poster note up at my desk and it says, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. And that is from Richard Buckminster Fuller. He was a theorist, inventor, futurist, a big thinker, surely, but also a designer and an architect. There's no reason why we can't use imaginative thinking to create something real and tangible and positive for the world. In fact, there's every reason to do just that. And so today, more than ever, I have the pleasure to end the show and say thank you for listening. This is Joe. Stay curious. If you enjoy our show, be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player so you don't miss new episodes. And if you can, a five-star Apple review goes a long way to help us connect with other curious thinkers like yourself, and we really appreciate it. The views expressed on this podcast are that of the show's creators, the foresight leaders within Mars Wrigley, and don't necessarily reflect the views of Mars or other employers. Future Imagined is a production of Stories Bureau, produced by Elisa Manjarez, with editing and sound design by Matha de Leon. Thank you.